Section 10 of The Family Kitchen Gardener. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Stearns. The Family Kitchen Gardener by Robert Buist. Section 10. Parsley. Apium petrostomum. Persil. French. Petersil. German. The garden parsley is a biennial plant, a native of Sardinia, and is a very useful and pleasant vegetable, esteemed for many qualities besides that of garnishing. Its seasoning flavor, for soups and stews, is very agreeable to many. It also counteracts the smell of the breath after eating onions. It may be preserved for seasoning, by drying it till crisp in summer. Then rub it up fine between the hands, and put it away in a bottle for winter use. Culture. The curled variety only should be cultivated. It is more beautiful as a garnish than the plain, and requires very little more attention to keep it pure. Seed growers are not generally particular enough for this simple article. They ought, before the plants go to seed, to pull up all those that offer to be plain, reserving only those that are beautifully curled. Sow it in drills half an inch deep early in April. These drills may form an edging round any compartments of vegetables, or along the walks. It will remain from four to six weeks before it vegetates, and, what is rather remarkable, seed four years old will vegetate sooner than seed of the preceding year. As soon as the plants get three or four inches high, thin them to six inches apart, cut down about a third part at a time, by which means a young stock will be kept constantly for use. Should any of the plain leaf appear, root it out. An ounce of seed will suffice for any family. To have fresh green parsley at all seasons should be the aim and ambition of every gardener, and it is rather a matter of surprise that our markets and tables are not more liberally supplied with this valuable winter garniture. Keep it only from severe frost, and it will grow the whole winter. For this object, select a warm spot of ground, light and rich, four feet by six, Sow it early in the season, treat the plants as directed above, cut them all over in September, surround the bed early in November with boards, and cover it with mats or shutters. If glass can be obtained, so much the better. By this process a sufficient supply in the severest weather will be always obtainable. If a frame and sash are out of reach, procure some branches of spruce, pine, or cedar, and cover the bed during December, January, and February. It will grow tolerably well under such protection. Parsnip. Pastinaca sativa. Panace, French. Pastinaki, German. The parsnip is a biennial plant, that is, a plant that lives two years, seeds, and dies, like the onion, carrot, and turnip. It is a native of Europe and is a profitable and desirable root for family use in winter and spring, being both wholesome and nourishing and should be cultivated abundantly in every kitchen garden. Parsnips contain a considerable portion of sugar, and are more nourishing than either carrots or turnips. They make an excellent marmalade. Wine also, to some extent, is made from them. They are principally used at the table with boiled meats, though they make a very excellent dish after being boiled, sliced thinly, and dipped into a thin batter of flour and butter, or eggs, and afterwards fried brown. In my native country, Scotland, they are beaten up with potatoes and butter, and eaten with milk, 
making a very agreeable cottage dish. In an agricultural view, they are valuable. For milch cows, eat them with avidity, and yield an abundance of milk of rich and pleasant flavor, being preferable to the carrot or turnip for the purpose, which impart their taste to the milk. There are three varieties of the parsnip, two only of which are desirable. Guernsey parsnip, an improved variety of the common, grows large, and in deep light soils will attain the length of two feet. Sugar, or hallow crown, this is the best variety for garden culture. It is of a more uniform growth, has a smoother and cleaner tuber, and is equally as hardy and better flavored than the former, from which it is easily distinguished by the leaves arising from a cavity on the top or crown of the root. Culture. Any soil suitable for carrots will be found favorable for the parsnip. Deep, sandy loam is their delight. If it is not naturally so, it should be dug twenty inches deep as directed for trenching, page 8. Sow any time from March to May, in drills, one inch deep and fourteen inches from drill to drill. Scatter the seeds thinly, and cover neatly and evenly with the rake. As the plants grow, thin them out occasionally, and finally, till they stand eight inches apart in the row. In three weeks the seeds will appear, from which period till the leaves cover the ground, the soil must be stirred with a hoe every week or two. In October the leaves will begin to turn yellow, which is a certain sign of their maturity. They may then be dug up for use, as they are wanted. They will stand any severity of frost, so that it is necessary only to lift as many as will supply the family till the frost leaves the ground. They should be lifted their full length, and not cut with a spade, which injures them. Store away a sufficient supply for winter use, in time of severe frost, leaving a balance in the ground for spring supply, and some to go to seed. The seed keeps only two years, an ounce will supply a family. P. Pissum sativum. Pois, French. Herbs, German. The pea is of great antiquity as a culinary vegetable, and is familiar in the domestic cookery of every country. It is an annual, the seed being sown and matured in the same season, and in some varieties in an incredibly short space of time. They are considered a pleasant and nourishing food, having the character of purifying the blood and correcting scorbutic humors. In flavor and quality there is as great a difference in the pea as in any vegetable with which I am acquainted, though, from observation, cultivators and even cooks have little knowledge of the quality and flavor of the different varieties in cultivation. Some, when merely plain boiled and seasoned, are of themselves a luxury. Others require more assistance from the culinary art to make them palatable. It is not our object to detail the various modes of cooking, yet we confess that we have seen them misboiled. The earlier sorts take from half an hour to three quarters, the marrow fats from fifteen to twenty minutes according to age. To have their flavor perfect, they should be picked, shelled, and cooked, all within three or four hours. When kept overnight, their quality is greatly impaired. Some prefer them boiled with a bunch of mint. The only seasoning emitted by others is a little salt in the water. We will not detail the numerous sorts we grow or are acquainted with, but the following will be found most useful for market or family supply. They are those most noted for the quality, and are arranged in the order in which they come to maturity. Prince Albert, a dwarf grower, pods and peas small, four days earlier than any variety we have yet tried. Good flavor. Extra early, a very early pea that has been cultivated in this vicinity about fifty years, and was exclusively, for a long period, 
in the possession of a Mr. Cooper, near Camden, New Jersey, who, I am informed, obtained the seed from a German emigrant. It is the sort most extensively cultivated for our market, and for that purpose is preferable to any other, the crop being nearly all ready at once, when the ground can be cleared for a crop of beans or late tomatoes. Early Grotto A very superior family early pea, both in size and flavor, three or four days later than the former, and continues a much longer time in bearing. Early May A fine early variety, good flavored, and very productive. Early Frame A very celebrated pea in Europe, wear it. Hardiness makes it a general favorite. It is an abundant bearer and an excellent family pea. Early Charlton A very handy early pea, which comes in well as a secondary crop. Bishop's Dwarf A very remarkable dwarf variety, requiring no stakes nor support of any kind, except the earth drawn to its stems. It is very prolific, but does not do to sow late, as it is subject to mildew. It can be sown in rows eighteen inches apart. Draw the earth more to one side of the plants than the other, which will lay them all in one position, from which the crop can be more conveniently gathered. The above varieties, with the exception of Bishop's Dwarf, should be sown about three feet apart. Give them all stakes or rods, for the double purpose of protecting them from the wind and to support the vines. With stakes, the crop can be more readily gathered, and the plants will mature every pod. A quart of early peas will sow four drills, each thirty yards long. Royal Dwarf. This succeeds the early varieties. It grows between three and four feet high. Blue Marrow. A fine large pea, very prolific and well-flavored, sown about first of May, will be fit for the table about the fourth of July. White Marrow. Very generally cultivated, but is far surpassed by the mattress marrow, being larger, equally as productive, and superior in flavor, grows five feet high. White marrow, very generally cultivated, but is far surpassed by the matchless marrow, being larger, equally as productive, and superior in flavor, grows five feet high. Woodford marrow, a very green pea, and boils without losing color. It makes the most beautiful dish of green peas, and is an excellent bearer. Surprise, if sown about the 20th of March, will be fit for the table about the 12th of June. A very excellent late pea, of large size and superior flavor. Sugar pea, so called from its flavor. It is usually boiled in the pod's hole, only drawing the thread from the back of the pod before it is put into the water. It can also be cooked in the usual way. A very sweet pea, grows five feet high. Knight's Dwarf Marrow. This is called dwarf, though it grows five feet, and should be sown in drills at least that distance apart. Knight's Wrinkled Marrow. There are several varieties of this, all of first-rate excellence. Though the ripe seed are peculiarly wrinkled and very untempting, yet the green fruit are exceedingly fine-flavored. Scimitar. A large pea and abundant bear takes its name from the shape of the pods. It is well-flavored, so in about the 1st of May, it will be ready about the 6th of July. New Mammoth, a very tall growing pea, requiring rods six feet high. A great bearer, of large size, and perhaps the very best flavored pea grown. The only objection to it is the quantity of ground it occupies. They should be planted two inches apart in the drills, and six feet from row to row. A quart will plant three rows, each thirty yards long. 
if sown about the 1st of May. It will be ready about the 12th of July. British Queen A wrinkled marrow pea, of large size and luscious flavor, grows five to six feet high, a new pea of great excellence. There are twenty or twenty-five other varieties of the pea, but to go into a detail would be merely repeating what we have already said. They are generally mere varieties of those given, and so closely assimilated, that a name constitutes in most instances the only difference. The above list embraces varieties that become fit for the table in from six to ten weeks, and by repeated sowings, judiciously made, the garden will be supplied with peas from May to frost. We believe that there is no vegetable in the catalogue so universally agreeable as the pea. We have never heard any one say they could not eat well-cooked green peas, and it should be an emulation to have them always at least in their season. Culture The soil in which an early crop of peas is sown should be light, dry, and well sheltered. I have had great success with early peas by sowing a row along the south or east side of a board fence. This is done as soon as the frost is out of the ground in some seasons about the first of March, while in others as late as the 19th. Such was the spring of 1846, yet I had peas fit for the table on the 17th of May. There is no criterion of the earliness of the pea, for in 1844 I sowed peas on the 30th of April, which were fit for the table on the 10th of June, being within six weeks, and on heavy loamy ground. Ground for peas should be well manured the previous year. If it is heavily manured for the crop, it causes them to grow more to straw than seed. As soon as they are two inches high, draw earth to them, and when they have grown a few inches more, repeat it again. When they are eight or ten inches high, this earthing greatly protects the vines, and keeps the wind from driving them about. After the final earthing has been completed, stake them. The stakes or branches more properly should be of a fan form, and put in the ground in a slanting direction. On the other side of the row, reverse the position of the stakes, which affords the vines more protection and security. When they show their first blossoms, it is a good plan to top off the point of the vine. It then ceases to grow, and throws all its strength into the pods, by which they swell off more readily. Early peas should be sown in drills two inches deep, and the seeds about one inch apart in the drills, and two and a half feet from drill to drill. If stakes are scarce, two rows of peas can be sown in six inches apart, and then two rows the same way, four feet between each pair of rows. This is a general system, though I do not see what are its advantages. If the same quantity of seed be put into one row, it appears evident the product will be the same, but I have not satisfactorily tried the experiment. The height to which peas grow very much depends upon season and soil. Early sorts in a dry spring will grow two feet, while in a moist season they will grow four. Many of the marrow peas in some seasons will grow six feet, and in others ten. The spaces between the rows of early peas can be planted with lettuce or beans. The late kinds, where the rows are four or six feet apart, can be planted with early celery. The vines will partially shade the young plants till they have taken root. The late peas can also go on ground whence early lettuce or spinach has been taken. If the kinds we have named be sown from early in spring to the 10th of May, a crop of young peas will be in constant succession from May to the end of July. August and the first two weeks of September, in this vicinity and south, will be in want of green peas, which is very liberally supplied with the varieties of beans. 
Early peas may again be sown about the 15th of August. If the weather be dry, soak the peas 24 hours in water before sowing. Indeed, this is an excellent practice with all the tribe. When the ground is dry, the drills should have water poured into them before being planted. The seed will then grow at once, and not be in the least retarded, should the season continue dry. It will greatly prevent mildew if the peas are watered in continued droughts. The following mode of staking the tall varieties of the pea is both cheap and simple, and possesses many advantages. Procure a number of stakes, in length according to the height of the peas, and drive them into the ground on each side of the row, at a distance of six feet. Pass a small line of cotton, or onion twine, along the poles, taking a turn on each. As the peas advance, raise the next line higher, and so on, till they have attained their full height. Two lines will be enough, as the one line can be raised over the other. The air can circulate better through the vines than by the common method of staking. Peas can be successfully cultivated by artificial means, and a good crop produced either in pits or very gentle hotbeds. For this purpose, Bishop's early dwarf is most suitable. Sow in pots or boxes, rather thickly, and place them close to the glass till they are sufficiently strong for transplanting when they may be carefully taken out, with the roots as entire as possible, and planted in frames or pits, from front to back, in rows fifteen inches apart, and two inches from plant to plant. Give plenty of air by day, should the weather admit of it, but keep them well covered at night. It may be observed that in whatever way peas are raised for forcing, they should invariably be transplanted. The temperature should be from forty to sixty when they appear dry, moderate waterings will be necessary, more especially in time of bloom, and when the pods are setting and swelling. Those who pay some attention to the cultivation of this very luscious vegetable can very readily have them on the table from May to November in all ordinary seasons. Potato. Solanum tuberosum. Pomme de terre. French. Cartoffel. German. This universal vegetable is a perennial, well known upon every table, it is a native of South America. In the vicinity of Quito, they are known under the name of papas. They appear to have been known in Virginia as early as 1584, and were at that period cultivated by the colonists. It is very amusing to observe the remarks of early writers upon their character, some saying they are only fit for swine, while others recommend them as a delicate dish. It is a species of a very extensive family of plants, inhabitants of every part of the globe, all of a forbidding aspect, and not a few of them of the most deadly poison, while others are being extensively cultivated both as food and luxury to man. Among them are the eggplant and the tomato. We are now arrived at a period of the history of the potato, when there appears to be a universal scourge of blight, or blight passed over the crop. In every country where it is cultivated, universal in its effects, and as universally unaccounted for, some attributing it to one cause, while others take an altogether opposite view. It is always and does still appear to me to be an atmospheric disease, a kind of cholera, as I ten led it two years ago, which has threatened the past year nearly to extirbate the whole crop. We now predict that it has come to its height, and another season will produce a more healthy crop. Cultivation may promote health, that will not avert the calamity. New soil in the past year has been more genial to the production of sound tubers than old cultivated fields. 
though the former has not been entirely exempt from disease. The vines have always been affected after a few dull, cloudy, moist, warm days. These, succeeded by strong sunshine, made visible the first blighting effects. To cut off the stems close to the ground, as soon as the disease appeared, has invariably benefited, and in many instances entirely saved the tubers, and we still hope that this root, which has been for many years a luxury to the rich and bread to the poor, will yet continue to improve, as it has done during the past hundred years. On the quality of the potato, as used for food, a few words will suffice. It is the most nutritious of vegetables, where it agrees with the constitution, which is almost invariably the case, except in some few instances where there is a spare or thin habit of body. To those who take much exercise in the open air, it is excellent food, and yields a very considerable amount of nourishment. Too little attention is generally paid for the dressing of it, for an indifferent potato becomes good when well cooked and a superior one gains every attraction that an appetite can desire. An untinned iron saucepan is preferable to any other for boiling potatoes. In preparing them, they should never be peeled, or much of the nutritious quality is lost. They only require to be washed clean, and at farthest to be slightly scraped. After soaking in water for an hour, put them into the saucepan, with cold water sufficient to cover them. When it begins to boil, let a cupful of cold water be put in, which will check the boiling, and allow time for the potatoes to be done through, without there being in any danger of breaking when they are sufficiently soft, which may be known by trying them with a fork. Pour off the water, and let the pot with the potatoes continue for a short time over a gentle fire, and the heat will cause any remaining moisture to evaporate, when, after being peeled, they will be fit for the table. By this method of cooking, if strictly adhered to, they will be found more palatable than under any other. Various states and places have their favorite sorts. To enter into a general detail of their merits would only produce conflicting opinions, for we are certain that what may do well in one state or country would fail in another. Mercer and Foxite for Pennsylvania, Pink Eyes and Mercer for New York, Winnebago's and Blue Jackets for more eastern countries. But in no part of this country do we find the English, Irish, or Scotch potatoes to succeed we must look to our own exertions and industry in raising sorts from seed, if we wish to excel in quality. There is a very extensive field for improvement, and one that we can easily operate upon every year. The Mercer, in this vicinity, is a universal favorite. The genuine sort is of a longish flat and kidney form, with a liberal quantity of eyes, and pink-colored on the tapering end. Those covered with knotty protuberances are not considered so pure as those of a uniform shape. It is very early, a good bearer and a good keeper. Fox's seedling, for garden culture and earliness, will be found preferable to the former. It is a round white potato, of good size and excellent flavor, when eaten from the ground, but will not retain its superior qualities for winter use. Foxite, a yellowish-white potato, with the eyes much sunk. It is a great favorite in some situations and soils, as a late variety. It is an excellent keeper, and well-flavored. No vegetable varies more in quality in different soils than this, for a sort that would be pleasant and well-flavored in one soil will be coarse and rank in another. One fact may be observed, that white potatoes do best on light soils, while red will be most productive on clayey or retentive soils. Culture. The first matter to be considered is the soil, which, if of a sandy loam, is better calculated for the potato than a heavy or very clayey soil. 
though any soil will do, it must be observed that the roots produced in a light are more dry and sweeter than those grown in a heavy soil. The finest potatoes are grown in a new, light, rich loam. If the soil is heavy, the manure used should be composed of well-decayed leaves, horse manure, and ashes, well blended and mixed together before using. A good crop can seldom be raised if this article is sparingly laid on. Two or three inches thick is a good manuring, but if that quantity cannot be obtained to cover the whole ground, put it three or four inches thick in the drill only whereon the sets are laid. It is not our purpose to enter into a labor dissertation on the culture of this esculent on a large scale, or we could easily show that it is but very imperfectly understood. Our object at present is garden culture, and our remarks are intended to apply to that branch. A gardener or farmer must be very low in the scale of his profession, unless he knows what crop is to follow another. And it is a point very necessary with potatoes that the ground be roughly dug before winter, to have the soil well ameliorated before planting. Presuming that the ground is clear, where the late garbage crop was taken from, dig it deeply and turn it up roughly for the action of the winter. Then early in spring, lay on your manure, and as soon as the ground can be worked, open a furrow the full deep of the spade. Lay therein three or four inches of dung, on which plant the sets with the eye upward, ten inches apart, eighteen to twenty inches from row to row. Dig over the ground and plant as you proceed. Sets for planting should be cut at least one week before planting, and spread out thin on a floor to dry. Potatoes of medium size can make from four to six sets. There is a great difference of opinion in regard to the size of the potato to be used for the purpose of planting, some carefully selecting the largest, others preferring the medium, and some retaining the smallest. We never put any regard upon the size of the tuber, though we are careful in reserving the size of the set. In the event of their being small, we do not cut them. If of medium size, we make four to six sets, and if large, eight sets may be made. Again, the point of the potato is considered more early than the root end, and some only use those eyes that are in the middle. We have never dreamed this advantage worth much attention, though for a few very early planting we give preference to those eyes nearest the point of the tuber, as soon as they appear above ground, give frequent and deep hoeings, drawing earth carefully to the stems as they advance in growth. We assuredly detest the appearance of a weed among this crop, and frequently mourn and almost weep over fields of the rankest weeds where the undergrowth is potatoes. What can be expected from such slovenly husbandry? Gardening we will not call it. The crop is thereby injured in quality and quantity, and not only that, but frequently disease ensues, which is attributed to the potato degenerating. What an idea! Degenerate! No, never! All seeds, not only of this vegetable, but of every other, should be changed every three years at farthest, and we would change the kind of soil, or the potato for seed, every two years. A change from light soil to heavy, or the reverse, will tend to benefit the quality, and if this cannot be effected, change with some of your distant friends, or make purchase from other states. We have said that early potatoes should be planted as soon as the ground can be worked, which is from the 1st to the 20th of March. A few may be planted in a very sheltered place, where they would not be much exposed to late frost. The main crop should be planted about the 15th to the end of April. If left till a later period, they are very liable to be affected by the droughts of summer, and take on an autumn growth which invariably injures the quality of the tuber. The maturity of the crop is readily known by the whitening of the stems, 
though they are fit for the table, before that period. As soon as they are what is termed half-grown, a few may be lifted for use. Those intended for seed are considered better adapted for the purpose if they are not perfectly ripe, yet I doubt if this opinion is confirmed by experience. Writers on this very subject too frequently reiterate the expressions of their predecessors. This is very observable among writers on horticultural and agricultural subjects. The experience of Abercrombie, Speechley, and Knight is retailed as new matter for the present age, advanced in every other science, and is admitted as being as undeniable as any rule of Euclid. When passing through Ireland, that hotbed of potatoes, we observed them transplanting the sterna that had grown six or eight inches from one part of the field to another, in the same way that cabbages are planted, and I was informed the crop from those were fully as good as from the sets planted in the season. This operation can be performed in a country where there is a great deal of moisture, or during very cloudy, moist weather, but in dry, airy temperatures it would be a doubtful practice. Artificial Culture Various are the methods by which potatoes are forced, such as in frames, pits, hotbeds, under glass, or under shutters and mats. Whichever of these conveniences may be at hand, let there be from twenty inches to two feet of good manure in the bottom, over which place eighteen inches of good soil. Plant thereon your sets of foxes seedling, and cover them with four inches of earth. It is necessary that when finished, the material should be within six or eight inches of the glass. So over all some early short-topped scarlet radish, which will be off before the potatoes can be affected by their growth. To prevent their becoming long and spindling, give air on every favorable occasion, when there is no sunshine, from ten to three o'clock, protecting them at night. A few lettuce may also be planted between the rows. They can be cut off as soon as they are in the way. This is making the most of every inch of ground, and every industrious gardener knows the value of time and space. New sorts from seed. We can never have potatoes entirely suitable to our climate till we obtain such from seed in operation, rarely if ever attended to properly. For these experiments, the field is very large, and certain to be crowned with successful results. A single apple, as they are called, collected in September or October, will produce two dozen new kinds, and if even half a peck of apples were collected, separate and wash the seeds from the pulp, dry them, and wrap them up in strong paper till spring. About the middle of April, prepare a bed of fine earth, draw shallow drills thereon six inches apart and a quarter of an inch deep, sow the seeds thinly, and cover lightly with a very fine earth. They will come up in two or three weeks. When they are two inches high, thin out a portion, lifting them very carefully with a trowel, and transplant them into a piece of well-prepared ground, four inches apart and eight inches from row to row. Choose a moist, cloudy day for the purpose. Hoe them freely and earth them up a few times during the season. Treat the bed in like manner. In October, the roots will furnish a supply of small potatoes, which must be taken up and a portion of the best preserved in sand during winter, to be planted next spring in the usual way. After they have had the ensuing summer's growth, in October their tubers will have attained a sufficient size to determine their properties. It will be necessary to consider not only the flavor of each variety, but the size, shape, color and fertility, also the earliness or lateness, rejecting all that have not every quality combined, for only such are worthy a permanent culture. It will thus be seen that with very little care and a little labor, new varieties may be produced and proven in the short space of two or three years. Potatoes intended for keeping should be fully ripened before 
being taken up. When going through the process of lifting, drying, and storing, they should be handled with care, not filled up and emptied down as if they were as many atones. After having gone through the stone-casting process, nearly every potato shows its effects when brought to the table, being covered with bruised marks in proportion to their rough treatment. Whereas, if they are managed properly, every tuber would be as sound as on the day of its removal. Dry cellars, free from frost, are the most appropriate places of storage, and if they have a covering of sand, they will not lose a particle of their flavor. If sand or dry earth is not used, give them a covering of straw, to prevent the air from giving the outside potatoes an acrid taste. Toward the end of January and February, they should have a regular turning, to prevent their sprouting. If any have begun to grow, pick off the growths. They will require this operation repeated every few weeks while they are in the cellar. If this is not carefully attended to, and the potatoes allowed to grow to any extent, they will lose much of their farinaceous quality. It is also very essential to turn over frequently those intended for seed, to prevent a premature growth. The greater the vegetative power of the set, the finer and stronger they will grow. Pumpkin, or pompion, cucubita, ver, corge, French, curbis, German. We cannot think of admitting this vegetable into the precincts of a garden where there are melons, cucumbers, and other kindred plants. They would mix with and contaminate the quality of the more valuable sorts. If, however, there is an opportunity to plant a few in the field among the corn, we would recommend among the many sorts the cashaw as being the best. There is a variety of a very coarse nature cultivated in the field called the mammoth which frequently attains the enormous weight of 250 pounds, and is only fit for pigs or cattle. End of section 10. Recording by Jennifer Stearns, Concord, New Hampshire.